Hello and welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We're a church in Newmarket, Ontario, Canada that exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Thanks for joining us today. Father, we, those words that we've just proclaimed are true when, and Lord, they're true when we don't. Lord, that you are the Lord of glory and that there is no name as high as your name. And so, God, we open up your word, Lord, a window into your glory, and we ask, God, that now more than ever we would be convinced of that truth. God, that there is no name so beautiful, there is no pursuit so worthy of our time, there's no calling so worthy of our life as the calling that Christ calls us into, Lord. And so, God, we pray for this moment, Lord, for the power of your spirit to be with us, God, for your people to be ready to hear from you, to have a heart that is tilled, ready for the planting, the fresh planting of your word. God, you have a word for us. And so we're here to listen, God. So speak, we pray. We pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat, and as you do, you can take your copy of God's word and open it to to Philippians chapter 1. And if you don't have a copy of God's word, our ushers are going to be making their way to the front of the worship center. And they're going to make their way to the back again, and you can just stick your hand in the air, and they'll get a copy into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, you can keep this. This is our gift to you. We just trust that as you read it and hear God's voice, as he's written this book for us, uh, that your life will be changed. As I look back on my own life, and especially my Christian life, I can reflect on a, a time in my life where really everything changed. It was a pivotal moment in my life. I think I've spoken about it before, but I almost consider it like a second conversion. I know theologically that's a bit of a mess. Some of you guys are like, all right, this pastor, I'm ready to get out of here. You don't know what he's talking about. And yet in many ways, it was almost like, felt like a second conversion because after I experienced this, everything changed in my life. And, And that moment was when I read a book by John Piper called Desiring God. And to this day, this book I don't know if it's maybe because of the, you know, emotions that are tied to something that has an impact on you like that. But to this day, this book is in my top five books of all time because of what God had done in me in this time of reading it. Now, up until that point, I had, I was a Christian, and if you were to ask me, you know, what is true, I would have definitely 100% said Christianity, the gospel, everything in the Bible is true. But up until that point, it was really a belief that I had to cover me for eternity. I believed in eternity. I believed that the only way to heaven was through Jesus. And so it was really a way to cover me for eternity. But when I thought about life, I kind of felt like I would have never voiced it. But if you had the ability to kind of like press deeply into my heart, I kind of had this feeling of like, well, the unbelievers kind of have the corner on life. In fact, I I remember my pastor at time preaching things like this. Well, you know, sin would be a lot of fun if we could do, you know, if we could sin, that would be a lot of fun. And I kind of had this this sort of inner resentment that I couldn't really voice, that I I didn't really understand was there. But but this kind of feeling that the life worth living was the life that could kind of participate in whatever the world wanted. And it wasn't until I read Desiring God and, and came across this truth that the most satisfactory life we could live, that the deepest joy we could ever find was in the Son of God and Jesus Christ himself. 
and that Jesus was the one who God the Father, the creator of this world, delighted in most. It wasn't until I discovered this truth that I really came to understand what Paul is going to experientially understand in prison in Philippi, that the life worth living is the life for Christ. That living for Christ, that, that is the very thing that makes life worth living. Now, Paul's going to recognize this in Philippians 1, verses 18 to 26, and, and he's going to recognize it in a very emotionally raw way as, as he sits in prison and he contemplates if he's even going to make it out. I'm sure that you could just imagine what kind of emotions would be going on if you were in prison and, and you didn't know if this was going to be the end. You didn't know if you'd see fresh air again or if these walls that you surrounded you would be your final home. Well, look what Paul says in Philippians 1, starting in the second half of verse 18. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. God would reveal to Paul that living for Christ makes life worth living. Now, this in every way is completely opposite to what we hear from the world, isn't it? You and I daily are bombarded with, with really what, what the question, what is going to make life worth living? And so we constantly hear these ads, don't we? They, they get kind of sickening at times of, well, if you just have this, th then life is going to be worth living. Many of us follow these you know, social media accounts that kind of preach this message. Well, if your life is just like mine, you know, if you could align your highlight reel with my highlight reel, then you'd really be happy. And, and maybe we start to believe that the life worth living is somewhere outside of Christ. Honestly, we hear these messages. Maybe, maybe it's a family, a certain family dynamic, a certain family maturity. Maybe our life worth living is in fortune. You know, the more money we can accumulate, the higher job position we can have, the better house, the better car, the better phone. Maybe it's fame, more followers, more friends, more influence. Maybe it's fitness. Whatever it is, constantly you and I are bombarded with this message of, of what makes life worth living. And time and time again, we come back to Scripture and find one answer. Christ is the only thing. Paul says it so succinctly in verse 21. He says, for me to live is Christ. Nothing else. It's Christ's glory. And so I want us to see here as we really travel with Paul through the despairs of wondering if he'll make it out of this prison alive, I want us to see what happens when our, our core focus of life, when the central purpose of our life 
When the central desire of our life is to glorify Christ, to magnify him, when we can say with Paul, to live is Christ, when we make our life all about Christ, I want you to see what happens. What is the reward of those things? First thing I want you to see is this. I have purpose in my trials. I have purpose in my trials. Look at Paul's re- resolve here in verse 18. Look at Paul's resolve. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. I will rejoice. That, that is astounding, like rock-solid confidence. It's one thing for a person to say that at their birthday party. You understand that, right? Like, you know, is there a happier moment than when you're a kid and that cake's in front of you, everyone's there for you, they're singing, singing your praise. It's one thing to rejoice in life's greatest moments. It's one thing to know that you'll be happy in life's best moments. But consider that Paul says these words, yes, and I will rejoice in maybe the darkest moment of his life. Consider that Paul says this while he is in prison, in the context that that he's looking forward, and and he doesn't know if he's going to get out. He doesn't know if he's ever going to see the light of day again. He doesn't know if if all these churches that he's planted, he's going to see them grow into maturity. He doesn't know any of this. And yet, as he looks at his options, either death in this prison or or a life lived of fruitful service to God, you know know what he says? I'm going to rejoice either way. See, Paul has found a key that in the midst of his deepest trial, he can find joy. And it's a key that he offers to us this morning. That in the midst of our deepest trials, in the midst of our deepest valleys, you and I can have joy if we have unlocked this one thing. And and Paul tells us exactly what it is. It is a life lived for the glory of Christ. It is a life that, that central purpose is Christ. It is a life that can say to live is Christ. He's why I'm here. He is what makes life worth living. When we have that as the central tenant of our heart, then we can, with Paul, in any circumstance, say this, I will rejoice. I have purpose in my trials. In other words, you can say this, Paul can rejoice because his focus isn't on his horizontal circumstance. It's on his vertical glory. Isn't that, isn't that the hard thing in trial and in suffering? The hard thing is that when life really starts to suck, the thing that is overwhelmingly apparent to you is how much life sucks. Isn't it? Like when you're in the midst of a trial, it's just the only thing sometimes you can think about is how difficult it is. When you go to sleep, you try to close your eyes, you try to sleep, but you just keep thinking about that circumstance. You keep thinking about the problem. You keep thinking about the trial. And Paul has done this intentional work of taking himself off of the the circumstance, and there is much that he could, you know, complain about. He's currently in chains. He's currently bound. He's currently in prison. Like, he's got it pretty bad. And he would find a receptive audience in Philippi if he would just take a moment to say, you know, hey, listen, things are pretty bad here. And he doesn't say that. He says, I will rejoice. He's got his mind fixed on this vertical glory. And isn't that so true for our life? Like, like listen, if, if you look in this world for long enough, if you just look horizontally for long enough, you will find nothing but things to be upset about. Have you watched the news recently? 
If you watch the news recently, can you, can you make it through 10 minutes of watching the news and being like, wow, you know, things are going really well. I'm, I am really upbeat about life. This is great. Can you scroll social media for five minutes and be like, wow, our world, it's, it's going well. Things are great here. This is good. No, instead, instead, the more you look horizontally, the more you feel like this, this downcast of like, man, things just aren't going well. And especially when you yourself are walking through suffering and trial. This sort of equation that Paul had, had worked out, that the more he looks horizontally at his circumstance and meditates on those things, the more... Sorry, the less he'll be able to rejoice, but the more his eyes are up, focused on God's glory, desiring God to be glorified in his circumstance, the more he can look around then horizontally and rejoice in his circumstances. See, the reality is the more we're fixated on a vertical glory, the more we can rejoice in the midst of a horizontal horror that we live in, whether it's the world in and of itself or just this trial that we're going through. I love the way that one sufferer puts this. You guys, many of you would be familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata and her story. She became a paraplegic at a young age and was bound to life in a wheelchair. And she's written a number of really helpful works on suffering. But she says this. What's going to come up on the screen? She says, once you see your, your affliction as a preparation to meet God, you won't be so quick to call it suffering again. Even though I have rough moments in my wheelchair, for the most part, I consider my paralysis a gift. Just as Jesus ex- exchanged the meaning of the cross from a symbol of torture to one of hope and salvation, he gives me the grace to do the same with my chair. If a cross can become a blessing, so can a wheelchair. The wheelchair, in a sense, is behind me now. The despair is over. There are now other crosses to bear, other wheelchairs in my life to be exchanged into gifts. And we begin to get this sense that what God is doing in our suffering is taking these things that if we were just to look at them in and of themselves are are really horrific, horrible things. And yet as we look vertically first to see his glory and then look horizontally, we see that these things are really gifts. Now this is a supernatural thing to be able to be able to say that. In fact, we look at this quote, and many of us, I'm sure, are, are, we have this feeling of, like, I, I don't know that I could ever get there. And so the question is, how do we get there? How do we do this? And Paul gives us the path forward. Paul tells us exactly how he's got to this point of rejoicing. Look at, look at it in verse 19. He shows us the first thing. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Notice the first thing he says, the first thing that's getting him through this trial in a way that he understands there's a purpose in, it is the power of supplication. He says, through your prayers. And so I want you to recognize that perspective is impossible apart from a life of prayer. If you are not spending regular time talking to the Lord, I just want you to understand you cannot have any proper perspective of what's happening in the world. I mean, this is why we went to Psalm 73. This is exactly what has happened for God's people for all of time. So long as you are not in the presence of God, you will always interpret things wrong. The things that God has sent to your life as blessing, you will interpret as curse. The things that God sends to your life as curse, you will interpret as blessing. 
It's not till we find ourselves in the very presence of God that we have true perspective of what's really going on. And so Paul looks at himself and he says, I will rejoice. And the reason that I'm rejoicing is because I know that you're praying. Paul believed this. Paul believed in prayer. And so constantly in his ministry, he was calling for people to pray for him, understanding that he couldn't make it unless people prayed. Unless the people he knew were praying for him, he could not make it. And so in Romans 15, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. In 2 Thessalonians, he writes again, pray for us. That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 11, he says, you also help us. By prayer, what, what Paul understood is that he could not walk the Christian life apart from other people praying for him. And so I want to ask you this question right now. Who do you know in your life that is praying for you? Who do you know in your life that really practically, like, I'm talking not just like, okay, you know, I pray for Miles and I hope that he does really well and I hope his day is okay. I'm not talking like this general prayer. I'm talking like who knows like, like the inner gritty details of your heart. Who knows the, the struggle, the trial that you're going through. Who knows that, that challenging season that you're walking through with specifics and is praying specific things for the Lord to do in your midst. Who is praying that in, in the midst of that suffering, you would have proper perspective. Who's praying that in the midst of that battle with sin, you would be given victory? Who is it? Who comes to mind? Like, like who, you know, this is on you. People can't pray for you specifically unless you're willing to vulnerably get close to other people and say, hey, and also in humility, just say, hey, listen, I really need help. And it's hard because you got to admit, like, I'm messed up and I can't do this on my own. And for the 21st century man and woman, that's one of the hardest things to do. And yet Paul is unlocking here the joy that comes to our life when we can find brothers and sisters who look into our lives, who see it for all of its messiness and say this, I am going to help you in the most meaningful way. I'm going to pray for you. In fact, this past Sunday, I was preaching at my old church at Redemption Durham and a lady came up to me. She's an older lady and She's an incredibly sweet lady, and, and she came to me, and she said, she was so excited, which I, you know, I treasure those moments. Anytime I'm about to preach and someone's excited, you know, you lock that in your mind. And she came up, and she said, I was, I was praying for you this morning. She didn't know I was preaching there. She said, I pray for you every third day. And every time this woman sees me, she comes up, you know, I don't even know her name. She comes up, and she says, hey, how's, you know, is all my kids my name, all their ages? She knows that we're homeschooling. She knows about the church, and she's always praying for us specifically. And she came up, and she talked to me, and I, I leaned over to the pastor with, I was with, and I just said, I, I'm convinced we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to look back, and, and we're going to see like 50% of the fruit that came from this ministry was because of her because she was so faithfully praying specifically for so many people. And the application here is like be like that unnamed lady. Be like that person who is so adamant to pray specifically for the people in your life, for God's will to be accomplished specifically in their life. Because what we're discovering here is that Paul understood that this was the only way he could make it through was through the prayers of the people. Paul could have this perspective because of the power of supplication, but I want you to also notice that he 
understood that he was in the presence of a Savior. And so he says in verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. See, it's the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that is with him that gives Paul this this confidence that he's going to make it. And so the question for us is this. Do, do you recognize the presence of Jesus with you now? Do you sense his felt presence in your day-to-day life? This is a theological reality for you that Christ is with you. This is what we just celebrated at Christmas, but, but so many of us forget the truth so quickly that Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. That you do not suffer alone, but that you suffer in the presence of a Savior. That's why the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Listen, do you know this about, about Jesus, that he loves to help? He loves to help. He is like that doctor who, who goes into the jungle with the cure for some disease, and he is so eager when people come to him to find healing. This is who Jesus is. He draws near to the weak. He draws near to the suffering. When you are in your lowest moment and you turn to Jesus, this is what Jesus lives for. He longs to be near to you. And so in life's lowest moments, we, like Paul, need to meditate on this reality that we have the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ with us. He is with us. You know, more and more, I'm convinced as I have a window into other people's life and see what God is doing in my own life, that God is, he's so willing to drag you through what you think are the worst possible circumstances. He is so willing to drag you through what you think is like equivalent to mud if he believes that that's the place that you're going to meet him. He is so willing to do that. And I was reminded this week of a quote that has always been near to my heart by a missionary. His name is John G. Patton. And he was a missionary to a very dangerous jungle tribe. And, and one night he found himself hiding in a tree as these two tribes are fighting each other. And he's scared for his life many different occasions. But he writes this. I think this might be the second part of the quote. Is there two, maybe? It might not be, but it probably is. Just one? Okay. Well, let's read this and see uh, if half a, half a quote makes sense. <laughs> says, if, if it be to glorify God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, in the, mid, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? See, in this tree, John G. Patton had 
experienced the nearness of a Savior. He had experienced the presence of Jesus. And as he spent the entire night in this tree, as, as this jungle warfare was going on, he recognized that he would climb back into that tree for a moment if he could just experience the presence of a Savior like that. In the midst of our deepest trials and our hardest days, Jesus can be a presence to us like that. That makes the darkest nights bright, that makes the coldest days warm. See, when we live for Christ, when my life is Christ, I have purpose in trials. Second thing I want you to see, though, is that we have perspective in my time. I have perspective in my time. Now, notice that Paul's joy comes from this expectation that he will be delivered. But what's interesting here is that Paul doesn't know if he's going to be delivered. If we think like deliverance is him being delivered from his circumstances, at this point in the verse, Paul doesn't even know if he's going to live or die in prison. He doesn't know what's, what's better. Or, or so. He's at least inviting us into this journey in, in which he's saying that he doesn't know. And so what Paul is talking about in deliverance here is not deliverance from his circumstances, but that he'll be delivered to Christ's glory. So look what he says in verse 20. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. The thing that Paul is going to be delivered to here that fills him with such joy is that no matter what happens, Christ is going to be honored. There are two paths forward, and Paul looks at it, and he says, this is a win-win situation. Either I die and depart, and, and I'm with Christ, and that is, that's going to be a glory that I can't even imagine, far better than anything I could ever describe, or I live, and if I live, then it's fruitful service for me. I get to serve Christ. I get to live for him. I get to accomplish his glory. And so Paul looks at this, and he says, it's, this is a win-win. And he summarizes this in verse 21. You, you know these words. He says, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so even though there's only really two paths forward, it doesn't matter which one I walk on. I'm winning in this. I either get to serve Christ's glory or I die and get to be in glory. Now, here really marks the only two paths that are profitable for a believer to walk on. Two paths, either the, the path that leads to death and being in glory with Christ, or the path that leads to a life of fruitful service to Christ, where you look at every inch of your life and you say that every inch is for Christ. It's for his service. These are the, really the only two paths. This is what consumed another missionary, Jim Elliott missionary to the unreached people of Ecuador. He said this, listen to this. I, I covenanted with the Father to do one of two things. These are the same things that every believer makes their covenant with the Father. He says, either glorify himself to the utmost in me or slay me. He heard me, I believe, so that now I have nothing to look forward to but a life of sacrificial sonship or heaven which is coming soon, perhaps tomorrow. What a prospect. See, Jim Elliott, missionary who died at a young age, looked at his life and said, I only really have two paths. Either I die and I'm in the presence of God, or it's a life of fruitful service, or I get to serve him, or I get to serve his purposes in the world. 
And so we read that, and we need to ask this question. Do, do we honestly, like, th- this is not to be abnormal for the Christian life. This is the Christian life. Do we have that perspective that either death is gained because I'm in the presence of the Father, or I'm living and life is gained because I'm living in fruitful service to Christ. I am serving his purposes in my life. There's only two paths. Now listen, there's a time where theologically as Christians, this wasn't us. There was a time where each of us, we tried to live on a different path. We tried to live on the path of our own glory, of our own service. And yet the reality is that salvation is this. Salvation is that moment where you walking on that path, where you're serving your own glory, you decide that this is not the path for me. Salvation is that moment where you realize the end of that path is destruction. And you turn to Jesus, and knowing him to be a Savior, knowing him to be a Lord, you say, this is no longer my path. I am living for Christ. His will is my will. His purposes is my purpose. His life is my life. I will do all that he commands. This is salvation. And so the question that we need to ask for us is this. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced that moment? That moment where you realize that living for yourself, it it is a fruitless path that leads to eternal destruction. Have you experienced that moment where you've turned to Jesus and said, said, Jesus, you you are my Lord. Your will is my way. Here's the the reality. Many who, who claim to be Christians, they do not care about the path of life for Christ. They only care about death. And you cannot have one without the other. You cannot say, well, I want to be in heaven for all of eternity, and so I'm going to believe in Jesus Christ, but I'm going to do whatever I want while I'm on this earth. I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm just going to kind of add Jesus in. I'm just going to kind of sprinkle Jesus into my life. It doesn't work like that. If Jesus isn't your Lord, then he can't be your Savior. The reality is that both these things come hand in hand, that, that we come to realize that not only is death gained because of who Christ is, but a life lived for fruitful service to him is also gain. But as Christians, the reality, isn't the reality that we can become distracted at times? And there are times, like this morning, where we just need to do some self-reflection and ask the Lord, God, God, am I still convinced that the greatest life, that the life worth living is the life lived in fruitful service to you? Am I still convinced that the most important things that I can do on earth are the things that are done in, in the glory and honor of your name? Or am I, am I distracted? Isn't it so easy to be distracted by the many things that the world constantly preaches are better? And Christ is calling us this morning to life of focus, or our core focus, the central purpose of our life is him. We have perspective in our time. We understand to live is Christ, to die is gain. But Paul's showing us more about the life that's worth living and the life that's lived for Christ. And the third thing I want you to see is this, that when life is for Christ, I have priority in my tasks. When life is for Christ, I have priority in my tasks. This is an interesting passage, isn't it? As Paul is really inviting us into his mind as he contemplates life and death, as he contemplates whether or not he'll make it in, in this prison. In a sense, there's some indecision here. You read it in verse 23. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. 
My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul looks at death, and even though it would be amazing to be freed from suffering, to be in the presence of a Savior, ultimately he'll look at life and decide that there's a greater priority. And I think as we come to read this, it's, it's rather shocking to us. And it's important that even before we consider Paul's words, we consider our own life. If you're a Christian, you, you recognize how sweet it will be to be with Jesus. And so the question, in, the question then is this. When faced with those two paths, either life or death, what is it that keeps you here? What is that magnetic force that, that says, man, there are some reasons I need to stay on earth. There's some reasons I need to keep on living. There are some things I still need to do. What is your answer there? What is it that you turn to that says, this is what makes life worth living? This is why I need to go on. This is the great thing that I must do. This is what the world would miss if I were not here. The answer, I think, is shocking to our culture because for Paul, the answer is not his family, though that's a very important thing. And it's of utmost importance that we care for our family in our absence. His answer is also not any sense of accomplishment. Paul doesn't look at his life and say, oh, man, I have so many more churches to plant. I have so many more tents to make. I have so much more to do. He doesn't look at his bucket list. He doesn't say, oh, man, there's places I haven't visited yet. There's one thing that's keeping Paul here. It's one priority, and it's shocking to us. He says it in verse 25. He says, convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all. And listen to this. For your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Why is life worth living for Paul? Because he looks at the Philippian church and he recognizes that if he stays he will be able to influence people to maturity in the church. This is, among all the things that you you and I could think of right now that would make life possibly worth living, this is the priority. And being on the brink of life and death has given Paul this even deeper sense of this priority, that the reason he needs to stay is because the people in the church need his presence. Again, this is reinforcing what we saw time and time again a few weeks ago as we kind of marched through our church series, that the place of the church is much more central than the North American church has made it to be. The church is is the central purpose of Paul's life. He says, I'm here for their progress. I'm here because the longer I'm on earth, the more joy Christians will have, the more sanctification Christians will have, the more sense other Christians will have. That Christ is glorious. I'm here because other people need me. And so the question for you and I is this. The question that you need to wrestle with this morning is this. Should the answer be any different for you? Should the answer be any different for you? Should there be some other reason that you, you need to remain here? No matter how good that answer may be, should it be any different for you, biblically, theologically, as a follower of Christ? Should there be any other answer? And I think as you look through Scripture, what you find is no. This is what Jesus told us to be all about. He said, go and make disciples. Your life then, the very purpose, focus of your life is other-focused. 
It's on the maturing and making of disciples. And so Paul looks at his life and he says, the only thing that would be missed if I were to leave is the progress and joy of the saints in Philippi, and so I need to stay. And so the question for you and I is, what would be missed if we were to leave? And hopefully the answer is this, the, the progress and sanctification and glory of other believers in the church. Again, listen, you're looking at me saying, well, yeah, listen, obviously you're a pastor, okay? You're going you're gonna to really pump up the centrality of what's happening here. And I'm telling you to look at, look at the word of God. Look at, look at the model that God's word sets for us. When Paul says to live is Christ, this is what he means. Living for Christ is progressing other people's sanctification. It's inputting your life into their life so that they have more joy. It's helping them to see the glory in Christ Jesus. This is the model that, that scripture sets for us. Not me. And so our question then is this, what does this look like? If, our, if the life that's lived for Christ is a life of fruitful service to him in progressing other people's faith, what does this look like? I want you to see three things here. Notice that for Paul, that means that he's going to help people progress in sanctification. And the priority that living for Christ gives you and I is that you and I need to help other people progress in sanctification. This is what Paul says. I'm going to continue with you all. For your progress. Paul recognizes that because of his influence, they will be closer to Jesus Christ. In fact, in the next verse, he's going to say this in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel and essentially, essentially walk in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And look, look what he says. So that whether I come or see you or am absent, I may hear that you're doing that. Paul recognizes that his accountability, that his presence is the very thing that will push them on to Christian maturity. And so the question for you and I is this, how are you contributing to other people's maturity? This is a serious question. If you were to leave this church today, if this was the last time you were to visit here, whose maturity would suffer because you are now gone? Who would not be able to progress in the faith because you had such an essential role in their life that you were praying for them, that you were constantly encouraging them, that when they were walking in sin, you were slapping them over the head, spiritually, not physically. Like, whose faith is progressing because you are standing beside them constantly and, and spurring them on? This is what it means to live for Christ. And what needs to be happening right now is the, the Holy Spirit's kind of doing this, this introspective work of like, man, I could be a lot more involved in people's lives. I could be having a much more eternal impact in progressing people's sanctification. See, the reality is God has given you gifts. Didn't we see this in the church series? That, that if you're a believer, you have been given gifts by God, and they are gifts of service of his church. They are gifts to build other people up. And so this is the picture we get. Have you ever tried to build something and you don't have the right tool? Like, you know, one of my, my, my kids brought a little thing that they got for Christmas, and everything they got has batteries. And so it's been talk about trials. It's been really hard for me as a dad. But this thing was broken, and so I thought, you know, I don't know why I thought this, because I really know nothing about fixing anything. But I thought maybe I could fix it. So I looked at the back, but the, the little screwdriver was like a triangle head. And I don't know much about screwdrivers, but I've never seen a triangle head before. I, I don't have the tool to open this up and fix it, which is great, because once I opened it up and fixed it, I would have realized I don't have, like, the brain to also fix it. But I didn't have to get to that point. But I, just, I didn't have the tool, and so I couldn't do it. And that's the picture we get of the church. 
that you are given gifts that without administering those gifts in the lives of other believers, they don't have what they need to grow. You're essential. That's the way God has made it. He's given you gifts that are needed in the church for the building up of the body of Christ. What's this look like? Well, it looks like prayer, practical prayer, praying specifically for people in the life of the church. It looks like accountability. It looks like knowing what other people are going through and and constantly encouraging them in that, sending them verses, asking them how they're doing in that specific thing. It looks like the opportunity we have when we walk close to other brothers and sisters in Christ to teach them what we're learning in Scripture, to let let them watch our lives, to see how, how we live to counsel them through specific situations. These are all the things that are required constantly and more in the life of the church to help each other progress in sanctification. But notice also that Paul says this, that he's not only there for their progress, but also for their joy in the faith. See, if I'm committed to Christ's service and, and serving other people's progress, then I'm committed to helping other people rejoice in their faith. And this is the reality of our Christian life, is that we need other people to help us see the sweetness of faith. You ever had a season in life where you've just been away from other believers? And, and you know, maybe you're just surrounded by unbelievers, and you start to think that things that aren't normal are normal. And then you come into the presence of a believer, and, and you're reminded, like, man, there's, there, there's, there's a joy in them that I don't have right now. And you realize that the joy is this pursuit of Christ. And, and it... It encourages you with this desire of, like, I want to live for Christ. I want that kind of joy. I don't have it right now, but I know how they have it. See, living in community, it it causes us to see other people's faith and to pursue it rather than anything else. See, on our own, Satan has a lot of power. He can tempt us to a number of different things. But there is nothing so beautiful as the sweetness of faith seen in another believer. And so we come to this reality that not only can we do not do it alone, there are others in our midst that they cannot do it alone. They need our influence. They need our ministry. And we're there to help them rejoice in faith. And the third thing I want you to see is this. Very practically, how do I help other people grow? I help them glory in Christ. And so Paul says in verse 26, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul looks at his life, and he recognizes that as the Philippians continue to watch him, they will have every reason to give praise and glory to God for the way that they see God working in his life. The reality is when you're alone, when you're not walking with other believers, it it can be very hard to see how God is working in your midst. You might be like the prophet Elijah. You remember Elijah? He says, he says to God on Mount Carmel, I'm all alone. God, everybody's deserted you. I'm the only one. And it's an incredibly discouraging time where Elijah, he finds himself walking in loneliness. But then God does something. He reveals that there's 7,000 other people who have not given themselves over to Baal yet. And Elijah realizes, like, man, man, God is at work in all these people's lives in such a significant way. And yet God has to reveal that to him. I love one thing that John Piper says. John Piper says that God is always doing 10,000 things in our life, and we are usually aware of three of them. Isn't that true in your own life? Don't don't you kind of look back over your life and you're like, man, at that season of my life where I thought God was, like, kind of 
destitute. I thought he was away. He was really doing a lot. I didn't know it. And at the time, I could only see maybe like two or three things. You know, John Piper, he's a really spiritual guy. So he probably sees three. Maybe we see two. But we look back and we see, man, God was at work in so many ways. And what an astounding thought that right now God is at work in 10,000 ways in your life. And you likely only know three of them. And one of the realities is, is, is that as we get close to other believers, we can also see their three. And the ways that it works is often, you know, you're able to point out ways that God is working in other people's lives that they can't see themselves. Haven't you had that sometimes where, like, a, a brother or sister comes in Christ and they says, man, I just don't know, I don't know what God is doing. Like, the, and they start explaining their life, and, and you look at them, and you're like, I know exactly what God is doing. It seems pretty clear to me. And that's the reality is that at times we can see with greater clarity into other people's life, we can see the work that God is doing. And part of what this does is that it causes us to glory in Christ. So we talk about it time and time again. One of the greatest faith hacks that you can instill in your life is to walk with other believers and see what God is doing in their life. And be filled with this impression that God is at work. God is at work not in you alone, but in his church. And you come to realize this, that God is working in your midst and your heart is filled with this glory of God is at work. Like when, when you're alone, it feels like God is doing nothing. But man, after the service, you just take a, take a moment. Just, just try this out. Go to another believer and say, hey, what's God doing in your life right now? And you do that a hundred times in this room and you realize God is actively working. He is not idle in heaven he is doing thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of things in the lives of believers in this room. This is the life that's worth living. The life that is for Christ. The life that recognizes that when Christ is the core center of our lives, when everything is about him, we have purpose in our trials. We have perspective in our time. We have priority in our tasks. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you. And Lord, confess that it is so hard. God, it's so hard to make you the center of our lives. As sin still remains in us, and we still wage constant war against the flesh, Lord, we're constantly bombarded with this belief that maybe there's a better pursuit outside of you. And though we may never voice it, Lord, it's a daily battle of ours. And so we confess it before you this morning, Lord, and, and we ask you, God, to change us. And God, we pray that this would be a year where we experience the fruit of a life that is lived for your glory. The fruit that Paul experienced when he said this, that to live is Christ. Lord, we know, we know to die is gain. Lord, the believers in this place know that eternal life with you is, is going to be beyond our imagination. And yet, Lord, we pray even in this moment as we respond to you in song that we would be convinced more than we ever have been, Lord, that to live is Christ and that there is nothing greater than fruitful service to him, pouring ourselves into his people, making and maturing disciples, doing the work that you've called us to do, Lord. And so we lift this up to you, Lord, and we pray this in the name of your son. Amen.